when you think back to the years of your youth, can you remember uh, those times you waited alone in your room for one of your parents to come in and talk with you after your wrongdoing? I can. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't like that wait. I, I didn't like sitting on my bed and waiting for my parents to come in and talk with me. I didn't like that wait because all I could think about was what was mom or dad going to say? Now, many of you know my parents. Uh, they're not scary people. They're lovely people. Uh, and in one of God's many kindnesses to me, he gave me parents who love Jesus. So all of those conversations were not only well-deserved, uh, but for my good. Still, the, the unknown of what either my mom or dad would say after I had sinned often gripped me. I, I do wish that I had a stronger that a stronger spirit of repentance had gripped me in those moments. But at least my conscience was, was sensitive enough to know that I was in the wrong. My parents cared enough to tell me that I had sinned in those conversations. But more importantly, they told me something else too. They told me that they loved me. They told me that they loved me and that they always would. Telling me that I had sinned was an expression of love. Our, our world and culture uh, doesn't think that pointing out sin is all that loving these days, but it is. Still, even, even where we do speak the truth and address sin, we also need to communicate our love. And that it's actually love that motivates our speech. And as we turn to study Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 to 29, not all 41, we'll pick up the rest next week, should Christ tarry, Lord willing. Just Numbers 15, verses 1 to 29 this morning. This is what we see. In, in, in the face of Israel's rebellion and sin, God reassures His people of His love for them. This chapter, though filled with commands is also filled with comfort. In fact, comfort is even found in those commands. And it's my prayer that as we study this portion of God's Word this morning, even in the face of our own sin, we would be reassured of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage on page 128. Uh, sorry, 123. 123. Uh, the larger numbers in the text are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers in the text are the, the verses. So if you're not used to looking at a Bible, hopefully that'll help you to understand what I mean. But I want to refer to number chapter 15, verse 3, for example. Numbers chapter 15. And uh, let me just explain kind of where we are in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers opens with the people of Israel preparing for a journey through the wilderness in the hopes of making their way to the land that the Lord had promised to give Abraham's offspring. We've studied Israel's preparations for that journey. We've studied and seen them set out on their journey. We, we've even seen them make it to the edge of that promised land, their kind of destination. Um, and last week, we studied Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and we saw the people of Israel send spies into the land, into that land that they were to inhabit. 
Sadly, 10 of those 12 spies that they sent out returned with a bad report of the land. And so the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord and refused to enter the promised land. They refused to make it to their destination. It's, it's quite a startling decision by the people of Israel because that was the whole reason for their journey through the wilderness. Well, in response to Israel's rebellion, the Lord promised Israel that He would give the people what they asked for. In Numbers 13 and 14, they actually asked to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. So the Lord told them to set out for the way of the Red Sea. On hearing the, the bad report, the people of Israel said that it would have been better for them to die in the wilderness. So, the Lord said that a whole generation would die in the wilderness. In Numbers 14, the Lord promised that the older generation, all those 20 years old and up, would die in the wilderness. And that began to come to pass in Numbers 14. And do you remember how Numbers 14 ends? It ends with, with a thud. Look just above uh, Numbers 15 and look at the last verse of Numbers 14. Read Numbers 14, verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. Israel is defeated and pursued. In the, in the storyline of Numbers, we have moved far from the hope of entering the land that God promised to give in victory to Israel running away in defeat. Israel's rebellion against the command of the Lord has cast a long and dark shadow over their future. This is the setting in which Numbers chapter 15 opens. Israel's rebellion should be on our minds as we begin to read Numbers 15. And we might wonder, what will God say in the face of Israel's rebellion? We're going to study Numbers chapter 15 verses 1 to 29 under two headings. Reassurance in the face of rebellion, that's the first one. And the second one is the remission of sin. Let's begin with our first point. Reassurance in the face of rebellion. So with Israel's rebellion and refusal to enter into the land in view, begin reading Numbers 15 now. Look there. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. Now let's just stop right there for a moment and appreciate what the Lord is saying here. The people of Israel have rebelled. The Lord has promised retribution for their sin through an entire generation dying off in the wilderness. And that has begun to happen. And still here, He reassures them that He will keep His promises to Abraham. He will, he, he will bring the people of Israel into the promised land. He wants Moses to reassure his people of his faithfulness and commitment to them, even in the face of their faithlessness. And notice in verse 2 that it's not a matter of if, but when. As our, our brother John Ellis reminded us in the discipleship hour just a few weeks ago, promises imply a delay before their fulfillment. And while there must be time in between God's promises and His fulfillment of them, because He's God, there must be a fulfillment of them. 
and the keeping of those promises. Israel will eventually enter into the promised land. And they will enter into the land because God has committed Himself to keeping that promise. His word is sure. Children, youth, young adults, this is something I want you to catch about God's promises. He always keeps them. Unlike us, we we sometimes don't keep our promises. Even adults sometimes, sadly, don't keep our promises. God always keeps them. Every time you give your word, your promise, you have an opportunity to reflect God's promise-keeping nature. And when you keep a a promise, you you not only have an opportunity to reflect God's promise-keeping nature, but you also have an opportunity to remember and therefore rejoice that God has kept His most amazing promise to send His Son to live and die and be raised from the grave for sinners like you and me. Let me encourage you to speak with your parents or with a mature Christian uh, this afternoon or this evening about how God is always faithful to keep His promises and how you can not only reflect His character in your own life, but also rejoice in what He has done in keeping His promises in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 2 in our passage also presents another reassurance that I want us to see. And this reassurance, I think, is particularly comforting, especially in light of what happened at the end of chapter 14. If, if you recall, in Numbers chapter 14, verses 35 to, uh, 36 to 45, the people of Israel, they, against the Lord's command, they actually endeavor to take the promised land by force. After refusing to enter the promised land, and after hearing of the punishment that the Lord promised them for their rebellion, the people of Israel, they they say to themselves, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. They, They attempt to take the promised land by force, even when Moses told them that they would not succeed and that the Lord would not go with them. The promised land was not something that they could take in their own strength. Rather, it was a gift that God would give to His people. Israel could not go and apprehend God's promises with their own hands. They could not force God's hand, and neither can we. We need to remember this, especially when we are feeling defeated and discouraged. Sometimes when we are feeling defeated and discouraged, we have a tendency to to try to take matters into our own hands and attempt to to kind of change the situation. Instead of, of charging the hill, God calls us to trust Him. He calls us to, to faithfully plod along, proclaiming Jesus Christ and making disciples. That is our mission. To keep walking forward in the wilderness of this world, obeying His commands and trusting Him to give and fulfill His promises in His perfect timing. God gives His generous gifts when He is pleased to do so. But the reassurance of Numbers 15.2 is that God is pleased to do so. He will give what He has promised to Israel. So what is left for Israel to do, to trust 
and obey Him. Now, now that we see how the opening of chapter 15 expresses God's reassurance to His people, let's keep reading because He continues to reassure them even by giving them laws. So read Numbers chapter 15. Let's begin again at verse 1. Numbers 15, verses 1 through 16. Numbers 15, verses 1 through 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock, a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or with the sacrifice a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb or for a ram. You shall offer a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. And you shall offer... For the drink offering, half a hint of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus, it shall be done for each bull or ram, or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so you shall do with each one. As many as there are, every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in an offering, in a, in a, in an offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, from these verses, it's very clear that we are in the Pentateuch. We are in the first five books of the Bible. first five books of the Bible are sometimes referred to as the law. Uh, now, you, you may be thinking to yourself, why on earth are these laws here? I thought that this kind of teaching belonged in Leviticus. That's where all the, the bloody offerings and sacrifices belongs, right? Well, they, they do at one level. Um, and some of these laws are found in Leviticus. But these laws in particular are focused on a time when the people of Israel have made it through the wilderness. And the Lord has brought them in to the promised land. That's, that's what those first two verses were about. When, when you come into the land, you're to do these things. And this is... This is another element of God's reassurance. God is reassuring the younger generation that they are going to have all of these bulls and goats and lambs. They, they are going to have uh, this wine and this grain and this oil. They're going to have all of this when they come into the promised land. Is this not a, a remarkable and comforting reassurance to those 
who are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Is this not a remarkable reassurance, remarkable way to reassure those who are, are 19 years old and younger, those who have only known the provision of their parents? God is reassuring them that He loves them, that He will provide for them, that He will sustain them and bless them. There's yet another aspect of reassurance that we should see in these laws. God is reassuring His people that He wants to have a relationship with them. He's not disinheriting them or casting them off in the face of their rebellion. He's actually drawing them in. These sacrifices communicate communion with the living God. Whether it be a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of fellowship, a, a sacrifice for peace offering, all of them are related to God in one way or another. God is saying to His people, come to me, worship, and rejoice. That's why we see that phrase a couple of times, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is going to please the Lord because He's interacting with His people. He has a relationship with them. He delights in His people and He's calling them, even through these laws and sacrifices, to delight in Him. He is reassuring them that He will be their God. Do you see God's reassuring love in giving these laws to His people? Who knew that laws could communicate love? Well, God did. And that's why He gave them. These laws communicate that God is binding Himself to His people, but also His people to one another. In verse 15, you'll notice that the Lord intends for these laws to be one rule for the people of Israel and for those who are not ethnically Jewish among them for the stranger and sojourner. And here is a wonderful reminder of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He intended for Abraham's offspring to be a blessing, not just to one nation, but to all the nations. Here we see that God has always intended His people to be made up of those from every tongue and tribe and nation. Israel was chosen that the Messiah and Savior might come through her lineage but God's chosen people are now those who come from every ethnic lineage. And we need to make sure that we are, not, that we, that we are endeavoring to reach people from all over the world. We need to endeavor to reach those who are not just like us. Jesus is worthy of worship from every tongue and tribe and nation. And in the emphasis on this one law for both Jew and Gentile alike, we are reassured of God's love for all kinds of people, for all people. In verses 17 through 21, we see more reassurance of God's love. He continues to reassure His people. So read uh, Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. The Lord spoke with Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the, the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Now here in these verses, the people of Israel are once again reassured that they will make it into the promised land. 
And that it's the Lord who will bring them in. He'll do it in His might and His strength. They are reassured that they will have bread to eat. And they're called to offer the first of their dough to the Lord. Again, here we see God's reassurance clearly in these verses. God is reassuring His people that He's giving them a good land that will produce crops. And this needed to be said, especially after the bad report of Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, where the people of Israel were told that the land devours its inhabitants. It is an uninhabitable land. People can't survive there. That's the report that they were given. But here the Lord is saying, no, no, my people, this is a good land that will produce crops, that will sustain you and give you bread and life. When the people of Israel had entered into this land and the manna stopped falling from heaven, each time they made a batch of bread, they would be reassured and reminded that God is the one who gives daily bread. Setting aside the the first of the dough out of every batch would be a reassurance and reminder to each household that God was and is faithful to His promises and faithful to his people. Now I contemplated of making a joke about uh, giving the first of your dough to God in tithing, but I'll trust that's a better part of wisdom to leave that out. So, um, but nevertheless, even in this giving back to God, um, in our own giving, we are reminded as we give that God has been faithful to us. Brothers and sisters, don't give mindlessly as you give. Think about, I'm able to give because of God's generosity. He's providing from Him, for for me. So so worship Him as you give. Give Him thanks as you give. Don't just pass and go along and move on. Pray and thank God for His generosity to you. We should be reassured that He will be faithful to provide us for all that we need for life and godliness. In light of of Israel's rebellion through refusing to enter the promised land, they not only needed to be reassured, but they needed to be reminded that forgiveness is is available to those who repent and believe. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 29, reassurance of the remission of sins is graciously given. So let's turn and consider our second point, the remission of sin. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandments and onward throughout your generations, Then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. 
And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that what grabs you, grabs your attention as you read these verses, is not that sins are atoned for and forgiven, but that there's such a thing as unintentional sins and corporate sin. Verses 22 through 26 deal with corporate unintentional sins, while verses 27 to 29 deal with individual unintentional sin. So back when I was taking a criminal justice course for my undergraduate degree, I, I had a professor who used to love saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse. That phrase was trotted out every time a student would come to class and say, you know, I didn't know uh, a paper was due today. And of course, the reply from my professor would be, it's in the syllabus, and ignorance of the law is no excuse. And there that was. It may surprise us, perhaps because we have been ignorant of it, but yes, there is such a thing as unintentional sin. In fact, through these verses, we can see why Christians long ago began defining sin in their catechisms as any lack of conformity to God's law or transgression of God's law. The, the people of Israel could unwittingly sin by failing to conform to God's law, living up to it. And this is sometimes called a sin of omission. Or the people of Israel might sin by positively but unknowingly doing something that transgressed God's law, going beyond God's law. And this is sometimes referred to as a sin of commission. People uh, sometimes define those terms, omission and commission, differently, so they need to be used carefully and, and clearly in dialogue. Wh whatever the case may be, the kinds of sin in view here are, are not attempts to knowingly and willingly sin. They're, they're unintentional, um, un unwitting sins. Now, usually when we're studying the scriptures, we're focusing in on the concept of individual sin. But since corporate sin is mentioned here, I want to take some time and address this issue. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that corporate sin exists in the Bible, not merely as a hypothetical category, but as a reality. Adam's first transgression could be classified as a corporate sin. For he sinned as the representative head of all of mankind. And if you, if you, don't, um, you don't like that concept, you need to like it. <laughs> um, by Adam's sin, death came to all mankind. And by Jesus' righteousness, his people will be made righteous. We are either in one corporate head or in another corporate head. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There is such a thing as corporate redemption because there is such a thing as corporate sin. And um, you should really look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 to see Paul's argument concerning Adam and Christ and these corporate heads. And of course the encouragement is, is to put our faith in Christ. 
and to come into His corporate body. So Adam's first transgression could be classified as a corporate sin. Uh, You can think of other corporate sins in the Bible. You can think of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who were judged corporately for their sexual morality, their deceit and greed and injustice and pride and more. Uh, We know from Numbers chapters 13 and 14 that Israel was judged corporately for refusing to enter the promised land. They were made to wander 40 years in the wilderness, as we're learning here in Numbers. Israel was actually judged corporately again for their idolatry and then cast into exile. Uh, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem as a, as a corporate entity. There's such a thing in corporate, uh, as corporate sin in the scriptures where sin so predominantly characterizes a body of people that they are labeled with it and judged for it. Now we could think of corporate sins outside the pages of Scripture as well. We could think of the corporate sins of nations who were involved in slave trading. Uh, We could think of the corporate sins of nations who practiced genocide. Uh, We could think of the corporate sins of the states and localities who implemented Jim Crow laws. We could think of the corporate sin of, of really the Southern Baptist Convention, our own denomination which was founded because and by men who wanted to continue in the practice, the sinful practice of chattel slavery. Now, by God's grace, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, has confessed and repented of that sin, and we should continue to confess that it was a shameful part of our denomination's past. And we should be grateful that it is in the past, too. But what about our, our present context? We are all part of corporate bodies, as uh, on various levels of society and one of those bodies may be a national corporate body Um, the nation in which we are living uh, the United States of America is not God's chosen people or nation so I don't think that we should expect the United States uh, or any other nation for that matter um, to live in obedience to God's commands God doesn't relate to any nation on earth like he did with Old Testament Israel That was a unique uh, relation for the purposes of fulfilling His promises in Christ. Uh, This nation, the United States, uh, and every other nation is in rebellion against God. And while I'm not sure to what extent we as individuals will be held to account for the rebellion of the United States or the rebellion of any other nation in which we might reside at some other time, What I am sure of is that we should not join or partner with any nation, locality, or any other corporate body in sin. Let me also say that while the Lord may bring some hard providences upon various nations of the earth in response to their corporate sins, that does not mean that Christians will necessarily be spared from those hard providences. What is more, I think that Christians should refrain from trying to read God's hand of providence and tying a particular calamity to a particular corporate sin. So, for example, Christians should not claim that destructive wildfires in California are most certainly demonstrations of God's wrath on the state for its particular corporate sins. The Lord has not made that clear. And we should not claim that we can read God's hand of providence in earthly calamities. 
the most that we can say is that this world is under the curse and that the effects of the fall and the curse can be seen in these calamities that do take place. This world needs to be fully and finally redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, where in glory there will be no more sin or suffering or death. As I said, I'm not sure to what extent we as individuals will be held to account for the rebellion of whatever corporate bodies we may be connected with. What I am sure of is, as I said, we should not join or partner with any nation or locality or other corporate body in sin. For example, we as Christians should not partner in the sins of abortion, same-sex unions, preying on the poor through gambling and lottery systems, racism, or other sins that our society gives itself to. We need to abstain from these corporate sins and others and positively advocate for justice and mercy with regard to those sins. Now, this places some of you in an incredibly difficult situation as perhaps your employers advocate and advance some sins corporately. Your, your employment um, at such a company does not necessarily or inherently mean that you are partnering in sin. Uh, these challenges are incredibly complex. So I want to encourage you to talk with another wise brother or sister in Christ about these matters and humbly ask them, do you think I'm partnering in sin? Brothers and sisters, we, as I said, we live in a really complex world. We need God's wisdom and we need help from each other in living out God's ways. I'm inclined to think that we're living in pride if we don't have some wise Christian in our life that we are regularly, if not weekly, going to and asking, how do you think Jesus would call me to live in this situation? And then sharing the, the complexities of your situation and prayerfully searching the scriptures and thinking about it. If we don't have other believers in our lives that we can ask these kinds of questions to, then we may think too highly of our own wisdom. And besides, perhaps our brothers and sisters can help us to see how we might have been inadvertently or unintentionally sinning. And I think that it's important to note that inadvertent or unintentional individual and corporate sin is mentioned here, as it's mentioned here in Leviticus, uh, Numbers 15. It's actually addressed also in Leviticus chapter 4. And the remedy in both places is the same. Atonement for sin has to be made. In other words, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin, no removing of the charges and the guilt. In order for atonement to be made and the sacrifices offered that are mentioned here, a person or the congregation would have to become aware of it. When they did become aware, when their ignorance on the matter was removed, the only appropriate response was to repent and to seek the Lord's forgiveness. It's not okay to simply say, I didn't know, and then move on. No, the Lord has still been sinned against. His glory has been slighted, and we need to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness, whether individually or corporately. Now, we need to turn to this strange and foreign concept that I'm kind of just mentioning offhand, atonement, mentioned in these verses. One of the, um, one of the fascinating uh, aspects of the parallel passage of Leviticus 4 is that we learn that everyone sins and, and 
Moses there just kind of like lists everyone. He says priests, they inadvertently sin. The congregation sins, individual sins, leaders and rulers, inadvertent sins. Sins are committed by everyone and everyone is responsible for their sins, whether that be individually or corporately or both. And what we learn about this atonement from other passages in the Bible is that the person who sinned or, or the leader who represented the community was to offer an unblemished animal for the sacrifice. That person would then, then lay his hand on the head of this unblemished sacrificial animal. And what this symbolized was that the innocent animal would take the judgment and punishment due to the individual's sin or the congregation's sin. And the person, they wouldn't just like merely like tap the head of the animal. All right, there you go, sins are transferred. No, the person would actually lean down, put weight on the head of the animal, thus symbolizing the weight of their sin and guilt being transferred. This animal was a substitute standing in their place, bearing the sins and the consequences due to them. And so after having leaned on that sacrificial animal, that animal would be killed. The priest would shed its blood he would take the blood and sprinkle some on the veil, smear some on the altar, and pour the rest on the base of the altar. This is what would ha have to happen for the sins of a person or for the congregation to be atoned for. This is how a person or a congregation was made at one, atoned, at one with God. Le Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 and Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 shed light on this bloody process. Here's Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Here's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. From the book of Hebrews and the New Testament as a whole, we come to learn that Jesus Christ fulfilled this old order of things we read about here in the Old Testament. The, the principle remained the same. A life had to be given if a sinner's life was to be spared of God's judgment. But the blood of Jesus Christ was infinitely more precious and perfect than an animal in the Old Testament. A priest would offer these sacrifices day after day and year after year. But when Jesus came and shed His blood, for his people. He offered a single sacrifice for sins so that we might be forgiven. These sacrifices in Numbers and in the Old Testament point so clearly to the work of Jesus Christ, don't they? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told that Jesus is the one who knew no sin. He was, he was unblemished, and yet he was made to be sin for us. He was our substitute. We, we lean on him. Laying our sins on Jesus, as that one hymn says, the, the spotless Lamb of God. He takes them all, bears them, bears the accursed load. He was the Lamb of God who has come to take away our sins, as John says in John chapter 1, verse 29. He bore our sins in His body on the tree, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. There's still one more thing that we need to consider concerning this atoning sacrifice. When the offering was made, the Lord would forgive His people. Look at verse 25. 
And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven. Now look at the end of verse 20, 28. And he shall be forgiven. There's no uncertainty, is there? Atonement is made and forgiveness is secure. What a comfort that must have been to hear that their sins had been atoned for. That God's wrath against their sin had been satisfied and that they had been forgiven. Christian, don't you need to be told over and over and over again that your sins have been atoned for, that Jesus paid it all? You've been forgiven. Isn't this wonderful news that the Lord forgives His people? That because of the shedding of Christ's blood, the remission of sins has taken place. The charges, the penalty and debt against you have been canceled because the punishment has been paid by Jesus' blood. This is good news. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, this is the good news that we want you to share in this morning. Your sins can be forgiven if you would believe and lean on Jesus in faith. Trust in Him. Friend, you have sinned. We've all sinned. And my guess is, is that deep down you know that you have sinned. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were, we were made by God. We were made to, to live for Him, to obey His commands and bring Him glory. But we have unintentionally and intentionally sinned against Him. We have lived for ourselves and in doing so we have followed our own ways rather than His. We've lied, cheated, and stolen and lusted after those who are not our spouses. And the Bible tells us that the wages, the cost of our sin is death. That's the payment that's due to our sin. And we see that in the death of these sacrificial animals. But we see it all the more clearly in the death of Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that your sins will be punished. The question is, will you bear the eternal iniquity and punishment of your sins in hell? Or will you believe the Bible's teaching about Jesus, that He bore the punishments of all of those who would ever confess their sins, repent of them, and believe in Him? And Jesus, He didn't stay dead like that sacrificial animal. Like that lamb or that bull or that goat. No, three days later, God raised Jesus up from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. So friend, come to Christ. Lean on Him in faith and be forgiven. Lean on Him, believing that He died for you. And that He was raised for you. And, and if you want to know more about what it means to, to be forgiven by God and lean on Jesus in faith each day, and please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member uh, after the service or over lunch today. There's nothing more important you can think about what it means to lean on Jesus and to be forgiven because He has atoned for your sins. Christian, as long as we remain here on earth, we will continue to struggle with sin. As one Puritan minister said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. In view of Christ's death, we must put sin to death. 
we need to remember that Christ has died once and for all. His blood covers our sins past, present, future. And that remission of our sin is not a license to go on sinning so that grace may increase. Rather, it is an inducement to be killing sin and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The reassurance of the remission of our sins through the atonement of Christ ought to cultivate gratitude, encourage godliness, and stir our hope of glory. We should conclude. This morning, in considering Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 to 29, we have seen God's reassuring love displayed to the people of Israel, even in the face of their sin. God has reminded them that He is faithful to His promise, that He will bring them into the land. He has reminded Israel that there is even hope of forgiveness through the atoning blood of the Lamb. Christian, you need to know and be reassured that you are not the child on the bed who is uncertain about what God the Father might say. Even though we have sinned, and even though we ought to go and sin no more, our Father has already made His definitive pronouncement concerning us. For all of those who repent of their sin and hide themselves in Christ by faith and trust in His whole obedience to the Father, we receive the blessings of the pronouncement that God the Father uttered over Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christian, be assured that the Father loves every sinner, uh, every sinner who trusts in His Son. They are His child. You are His child in whom, because of Jesus Christ, He is well pleased. Let's pray together.